This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. If you're listening to this show, you probably like history. If you also like bourbon and want to dive into the history, science, and stories behind the labels, you have to check out Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. With three new episodes every week, you can learn all about the best bottles, the personalities behind your favorite brands, and get the juicy scoop on all things whiskey. For example, I just learned that bourbon is a distinctive product of the United States. It can't be produced anywhere else in the world. Kind of like champagne. And no, not all bourbon has to be made in Kentucky either. Join your hosts, Kenny, Ryan, and Fred on an epic bourbon adventure. Subscribe and follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History at Tenry Zamoda, Danny of Deljabar. And uh, today we have a guest on, a uh, friend of the show, Joseph Solis Mullen. How's it going, man? How are you? Oh, it's good. Thanks for having me again. How are both of you? Chilling, man, as per usual. Doing doing well, trying to uh, lobby against World War III. <laughs> trying to lobby against the notion that we should take a nuke for the team. That <laughs> oh, seems Jesus. to be the popular sentiment right now. <laughs> Well, wow. if we don't, was, we're not very tough. I mean, no. we're not very tough. But we're, if we're not willing to trade cities at this point, yeah. then we're basically what's the point of these Putin, alliances anyway Putin if we don't win, have any yeah. credibility? Yep. What's NATO for? What's <laughs> the UN for if we're not willing to sacrifice New York and, and Los Angeles? Well, maybe Los Angeles, but not New York because I live here. <laughs> Jesus. Um, but um, but thanks for thanks for joining today. Um, you know, today we want to have a. I guess an open conversation. It is April third on Sunday, so this episode is going to be released on Monday. So I guess we'll be pretty current, but I guess within the next twenty-four hours, a lot of things could change. So who knows if this will be even relevant? But um, as it's going on today, the war continues. Unfortunately, um, you know, every time you release an episode and we we do a backlog. I'm hoping that the war is over by the time the episode releases, but you know, we really can't hold our breath. But um, I guess Joseph, I think we spoke about a month ago at this point about it. And, you know, we mainly spoke about like uh, NATO expansion and things like that. Um, What's your general take right now? How are you feeling? Not very well, quite frankly, this has all been a disaster for everyone involved and uh, there's really no end in sight. Uh, I think there are actually a lot of uh, malincentives mixed into the system here. It's been pretty widely documented at this point, but Anthony Blinken's made absolutely no effort to get in touch with his counterpart. And really, Jake Sullivan and Biden's interactions have really only served to saber saber rattle and to uh, amplify uh, the potential for the conflict widening. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, been obviously disastrous for the people of Ukraine. Uh it's 
if, if this continues, I, I think there's a high probability that there are going to be a lot of costs imposed on everyone. And so obviously it's in all of our interest to have uh, the fighting conclude uh, as quickly as possible. But um, the demands that uh, Putin has outlined, they're, they're tough for Zelensky uh, to accept. And we're basically right where we were a few months ago when, when Putin made his initial demand. Um, so we'll, we'll have well, to maybe, wait and see. Maybe maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, uh, the end of the war, right? Because it seems like, you know, as you pointed out, that the demands are pretty steep. So, you know, something's got to give. So either we come to a, an agreement or, you know, somebody loses, right? Like loses in the actual war. And one thing that I wanted to talk about today uh, was this narrative that's going around uh, that Ukraine could win the war uh, because, and, and this part is kind of true, you know, Ukraine has held off the Russians from pulling off this, like, clean sweep of Kiev, you know, in a few days that I think everybody expected us included, right? And so, you know, here we have this major superpower going against a militarily inferior nation, though not a pushover, as we can see. Uh, and, you know, I feel like even on the show, we've, we've talked about, uh, you know, a swift Russian victory. But it's not going like that, as we can see. We're, we're about, what, a month in now? Probably a month and a day uh, at this point. And it doesn't appear, at least with the information that we have available to us, that it's going to end anytime soon, right? And, you know, th th this idea that Ukrainians are winning somehow, or at least stalling the Russians, you know, I I've been putting myself in this camp uh, admittedly, and I'll freely admit that, probably because I'm, I'm hoping that the Ukrainians will, like, basically teach Putin a lesson for invading, right? And that's just me rooting for the underdog a little bit. But I wanted to check myself, you know, because that, that is a, a bias, right? And I wanted to talk about whether there's any legs to the idea that Russia is losing in any way. So, uh, Henry, you sent me over this interview uh, of Scott Ritter that I loved, by the way. Scott Ritter, for those who don't know, uh, former Marine, former UN weapons inspector, generally somebody more qualified than me to talk about this issue, <laughs> right? And, you know, they talk about a lot of things, but the one, one of the things that, that I honed in on for this particular thing is that, you know, Scott Ritter says that the Russian advance has been faster than the Red Army advance on the Eastern Front in World War II. And, and that part, you know, kind of jumped at me. Also, I want to say that he, he towards the end of the episode uh, that he was on, he goes out and says, like, don't believe me, just listen to me, and then, you know, go back and verify it yourself. So I took him up on his offer, right? And I'm like, okay, fair. This part struck me as weird. I want to take a look at this. So I tried my best to verify what he was saying about the speed of the Red Army, because my gut tells me otherwise, right? I feel like this is slow. So I tried my best to verify it. Of course, as you said, Joe, early on in the show, it's super hard to get some accurate information, super hard to figure out what's going on, on the ground. So I had to figure this out in a roundabout way. A couple episodes ago, I reviewed the Center for Strategic and International Studies um, article on uh, Russia's possible invasion of Ukraine. This was written by Seth Jones uh, back in January of 22. And, you know, in, in this article, it outlines a whole lot of things, including, you know, the possible strategy for a invasion. And I kind of use this because it, it brought up some interesting points. So I want to read a quick quote from that. So uh, they wrote, 
Mechanized attacks are not always as rapid as attackers hope. Two of the quickest movements of armed forces in history, German General Heinz Guterin's punch through the Ardennes and the seizure of Dunkirk in May 1940, and the U.S. and coalition advance from the Kuwait border to Baghdad in 2003. Each averaged approximately 20 miles per day. Movement against a determined foe in winter conditions with limited daylight could reduce that rate of advance significantly. So that's the end of the quote. It's basically saying fastest we know about in history, at least modern history, in terms of advance is about 20 miles a day. And, you know, uh, he brings up about three really good examples of that. He also goes on to say that the, you know, uh, the weather uh, and, you know, I, I've talked about this ad nauseum on the show. It's like it was stupid of Russia to move in in March because that's when everything starts to thaw and the mud is ridiculous. And, you know, if you ha- that limits you to using main roads, which makes it you really easy target for, you know, things like drone strikes, you know, or like bombs and things like that. So, you know, get, kind of a dumb idea. I'm not going to go into that again today. What I want to go into is, is talk about that speed right? Because Scott Ritter says they're moving fast. And history tells us fastest speed is 20 miles a day in major modern military campaigns. So I legit could not find these rates of advance for Ukraine. So instead, you know, I did some back of the envelope math to figure it out myself. So back to CSIS. Um, Kiev and the Dnieper River crossings are at least 150 to 200 road miles from the Russian border and its army will require at least several days of fighting to reach them. Both of these points are true, right? So it's been, what, four weeks, maybe a little longer uh, since the Russian invasion? So if the Russians had advanced directly from that very eastern part, you know, their border uh, with Ukraine, all the way to Kiev, that would be about 50 miles per week or a little over seven miles a day, right? And that would be the fastest speed of possible based on the information that we have. And as we know, they did get close to Kiev, but not through marching from the east, right? They came in from the north through Belarus, so shortcut, right? And, and I've been looking at every battle map possible and I'm like using my fingers to try and measure the, the distance using that legend. You know, it's like a little line. That's, this is 100 miles, right? And... Uh, I, I've, I'm not seeing any stretch of captured, you know, Russian captured territory that's looking more than 200 miles. So realistically, the Russian rate of advance has to be less than seven miles a day. So already I'm starting to feel a little weird about that. And, and it's putting me in the camp, like a little bit further into the camp of like Ukrainians are winning, right? Because they're not moving fast enough, right? So Scott Ritter, he admittedly, he didn't say it was the fastest ever in history, right? He just said it was the fastest that, you know, faster than the Red Army in World War II on the Eastern Front. So let's look at that. So from, from Britannica.com, I got, you know, on, on the, uh, the war from June through December 1944 on the Eastern Front, and, and they wrote, unprecedented length and speed of uh, Red Army's advance. It was 450 miles in five weeks. So same math, right? It's really crazy, right? Same math. That's 12 and a half miles per day. So based on my estimates, that's still faster than the Russian movements today, you know? But you know what? I'm, I'm just a guy, right? I'm, I'm some guy talking on a podcast. And 
Scott Ritter has actual military experience, and maybe I'm just misunderstanding him in some way. Um, so let's ignore my part for a little bit, even though I feel a little bit weird about it. And let's just say the Russians are moving faster than World War II. And we're just, maybe it's just this media lens that we're getting right now, right? This, this fog of war, this one-sided media stream that we're getting that's telling us, hey, Ukrainians are winning, and I should disbelieve that for a moment because, you know, it's propaganda, right? I mean, what do you guys think about that in, in terms of speed? Well, I think when, when we start talking about who is winning, I, I think we need to first start with definitions of what winning and losing mean. Because to me, it's not clear precisely what winning and losing means. Uh, maybe you have something specific in mind. Okay. Well, what about um, capturing cities, right? That's, that's like a good measuring stick for like, I'm winning, right? Um, well, there's, well, Danny, we don't know yeah. if capturing cities, like how many cities they plan on capturing or if well, Mario we don't know how like much the they're planning on capturing. They, what's that? We don't know that. We, no, we don't right. know what, their, what the Russian playbook is. And I think that's what... A lot of Scott Ritter was saying, and other analysts have been saying that as well. We don't exactly know what their strategic objectives are, other right. than to, you know, they're pretty vague. Denazification and neutrality are the two strategic objectives that they stated, which are, right. I mean, neutrality is not vague, but denazification is kind of vague. That could mean, hey, we want to completely eliminate the Ukrainian army. That could mean that we want to, um, create a new government there that, that doesn't have any like the you know the right wing bandera is type people in it um we, we don't exactly know what it is so we we're, we don't really know if occupation is part of the game plan here if they want to split the country in two sure. along the Dnieper river if they just want to um rock as many uh you know you, you ukrainian military units as, um we don't exactly know what they want um and what from what i've seen i you know i've, I've listened to uh you know and, and read uh colonel douglas mcgregor um in his in his opinion the russians are mainly concerned with just eliminating ukrainian military units and um you know they're not trying to get sucked into these cities because you know mariupol was was uh you know the the, the battle there is, is pretty much has ended but um they don't want to get sucked into this, these urban combat situations and lose a right. bunch of troops because, I mean, you're just right. going to lose a bunch of troops if you get sucked into urban combat uh, situations. Like, look at the Battle of Stalingrad during World War II. You know, mm -hmm. the Germans got sucked up into Stalingrad and they lost the 6th Army, you know, their, their best army um, because, you know, they, they decided to take the city. So we don't you're know right. if the Russians are trying to avoid that. They think that they can take Kiev with... Uh, with uh, uh, 50,000 troops when the city has what, uh, I forget the exact population, over 2 million people, Millions, between 2 yeah. to 3 million people, you know, that's that's not most likely going to happen. I, I don't think they have the ability to take Kiev, and we don't know if that's their objective or not. But, For sure, um, and, and that's kind of the point I want to make here, right? The fact that we don't know what their objective is means that we can't accurately measure whether or not they're winning or losing, because we don't know what they're, tr what they're going for, right? But we can talk about you know, the narrative that's coming out that Russia, that Russia's are losing. And one way, another, in addition to the speed, another way is the capturing of cities. And, you know, this, you know, at least on the face of it, it seems to look like evidence that the, the Ukrainians are winning because the Russians haven't captured any cities. And in most major conflicts and wars, a, 
a pretty standard way of looking at whether or not someone is winning or losing is how many cities have they captured? You know, how much territory have they gained, right? But even this, I think this is where I'm starting to fall away from the, the Ukrainians are winning camp, right? Because it's, it's not exactly true, as you point out, Henry, that, you know, the Russians are losing because they haven't captured any cities. So Scott actually does bring up kind of the, the marine math, he calls it, right, for how to, how to win a war. And that math, pretty simple formula, is you need three attackers per defender. And the opposite is true for this entire conflict, you know, globally. There's like 200,000 Russian troops versus 260,000 regular army defenders and at least another 200,000 in reservists, but it's probably a lot more than that. Uh, because they got reservists, territorial defenses, foreign legionnaires, all the numbers. It's fucking huge, right? So they're not meeting that three attackers per one defender rule, right? And specifically in cities, as you pointed out, Henry, you know, they're not going to take Kiev with 40,000, 50,000 troops. It's just not going to happen, right? It's, it would be a fucking miracle. Um, so to your point, they are avoiding the cities because they don't want to get sucked up into those you know, uh, uh, urban combat situations. Just a single city, any single city, would require their entire military force to take, right? Um, so you're right. You know, them not taking any cities doesn't necessarily tell us that the Ukrainians are winning or more, more aptly that the Russians are losing. And so Scott does talk a lot about what will, okay, let's take a guess at what they're getting at, right? What, are, what is the playbook based on what they're doing? And, you know, one, one point that he talks about a lot is this maneuvering, right? War from maneuvering war. And what he's doing is feints. What Putin and Russia are doing are feints. So Scott brings up Desert Storm as like a case study for this, right? So in Desert Storm, uh, to, to make this as simple as possible, you know, the U.S. sent an amphibious assault on Kuwait from the water, right? The reason why they did this, they sent, you know, small amount of people, I forget the exact number, but start hitting Kuwait, hitting Kuwait, and the Iraqi forces are like, shit, they're hitting Kuwait, we have to stay here and like defend Kuwait because this is the territory that we captured. So they bogged down a shit ton of, you know, the, the Iraqi forces in that area. But that wasn't the main target. The main target was coming in and rolling, you know, armed forces, uh, heavy armor through, uh, you know, the, the West into, um, uh, into Iraq. And by bogging down the Iraqi forces in Kuwait, they were not able to stop that armored, um, that armored assault from the West, which, you know, was the way that, that the U.S. was able to outflank them. And, you know, to my earlier point, contributed to the speed of advance of the United States, you know, during that major modern conflict. And that's what we see right now, you know, with Russia. The first thing that they did was run up that coastline from Crimea to set up the land bridge between um, Crimea and the Donbass. That was a prime strategic, um, you know, uh, goal of theirs, or at least it appears that way based on what they've done, right? If we see how many forces they've committed to each place, we can kind of tell, hey, you put more forces in one place, that's probably important. Meanwhile, they sent a bunch of people all over the, you know, the borders of, of Ukraine, and they sent them down through Belarus into the Kiev area. Now, they only committed about 40,000 troops, you know, to trying to capture <laughs> at least what appears like uh, what the feint is, trying to capture Kiev. 40,000 troops isn't going to cut it. It's not, it's not going to happen. They sent a bunch of paratroopers to the, 
you know, to the airports and they did a bunch of things, but that was a fake. That was the, the, the feint, if you will. Meanwhile, they're committing the most amount of forces down in the Southeast region, you know, and in particular, they committed 50,000 troops against 15,000 Azov and Marines in Mariupol. So if we do that Marine math there, they're actually hitting that number, that, you know, three to four attackers per defender. And, you know, you can see that they were way more serious about that fight in particular than they were in the fight in Kiev, right? Because the, the, the numbers uh, show it that way. And interestingly, Mariupol, until just very recently, is the only city that they've, quote, captured. But I wouldn't necessarily call it captured. More like leveled. They leveled that city. You yeah, know? they destroyed and, that city. It's completely, yeah, it's like it's, Grozny. It's gone. It's gone. All, I mean, we can assume, I, I, we, it's still too early to tell, but we can assume probably all 15,000 of the, of the Azov and those Marines, those Ukrainian Marines are probably dead. They're probably all dead. But, you if know. not POWs. We don't know how many POWs yeah, but it like, took, uh, but uh, I don't think those Azov guys city. were going to uh, surrendering. I think they were fighting to the death. That's why the fighting yeah. was so brutal. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think it's safe to assume that they're a loss of military power. Right. So, you know, if, if we just look at where are Russians actually committing their forces, you know, we can kind of start seeing the picture that, okay, the, the Kiev thing was fake. That was a fake out, right? It was a pump fake, if you will, right? It was pretending like we we're going to go left and they went right, right? And, and we can also see that just in, in, in the, the public sphere, right? So Putin's saying, oh, we're going to start pulling out troops, you know, from the Kiev region, and we're going to focus on, you know, the, the Donbass and, and securing that area, right? They've said this out loud at this point, you know? So we can pretty much confirm that. Um, you know, at first, I, I, I had the opinion that, you know, I think they were trying to give it the old college try and see if they could take Kiev <laughs> with 40,000 troops, you know? Um, I, th- I think it's pretty clear that that's definitely what happened. Yeah. Yeah. They decide to give it a try. I mean, the worst that's going to happen from their perspective is you get rejected. I mean, there's also been a lot of reports that, you know, maybe Putin wasn't getting the best intelligence about what was actually going on on the ground. There's mm-hmm. also been a lot of, like, executions um, of, like, suspected collaborators and stuff. So it might be that they were going to try try to very quickly topple the Kiev government. But it's quite clear, as you said, from their dispersal, their dispersal of forces. If we talk about Putin's claim that he wanted to denazify Ukraine, well, that explains the weight of forces in Mariupol. Even an analyst who's as mainstream as Ian Bremmer has basically said on Twitter, well, if his goal was to denazify Ukraine, he probably just did it by leveling Mariupol. Yeah. But if we look at what else is going on in the southwest of the country, I think here's some interesting things that are going on, because Odessa is a very important city uh, to Russian culture, as well as Ukrainian culture. And it's come under attack now uh, for the first time this past week. And I I think there's a very strong possibility that they might want to make a land bridge to Transnistria, if that's Mm -hmm. possible. Yeah. Um, uh, You mentioned uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor. He had suggested that maybe they would pull back from Kiev and focus on securing everything east of the Dnieper and then keep the land bridge to Transnistria. Uh, you know, a lot of it's going to depend how long the Russians can keep this effort going in the field, uh, because it is an incredible exertion. Yeah. Uh, I I think you've done a good job fleshing out maybe what victory or defeat might look like for both sides. And so as, as long as Kiev stays in 
the hands of the Zelensky government, as long as the Ukrainian army is still in the field. Are, are, are you willing to call that victory, even if Putin hasn't called off the attack yet? Is that kind of the measure of Ukrainian victory at this point? A I don't stalemate? know. I don't, I don't know. You know, and, and, and the reason why I don't know is not because I'm looking at it from the Ukrainian perspective, but because I'm looking at it from the Russian perspective. They started the war, right? So I feel like they kind of own the conditions of, of winning or losing, right? And because they've been intentionally vague about, you know, uh, what their intentions are, at least, you know, like, like Henry said, neutrality is not vague. That part, we can, we can check a box and say whether or not, whether or not they get that later. But, you know... What they does want territorial concessions. Mean? What does you know? Well, they want territorial concessions, right? And that's the real sticking point at this point. Because if NATO won't take Ukraine in, which they won't, and never were going to, um, at least not anytime in the next decade, decade and a half. Those are directly from that's directly from the mouth of Joe Biden. Um, no, they don't have a choice about neutrality. So neutrality mm -hmm. has to happen for the war to stop. The real question, right. the real sticking point, as far as I can tell from everything that's coming out of these talks, is. I mean, there are facts on the ground and there have been facts on the ground. And Putin's main reason, he said, for starting the intervention was uh, the invasion was to secure uh, the lives of Russian speakers uh, in the breakaway regions in the east of the country. Well, that that looks like it's going to be secured at this point. Um, but I'm guessing he probably Putin can't leave without getting something on paper from Kiev. Like, Putin needs a way to sell this as a victory at home. You've got lots of dead Russians, lots of missing military equipment, a lot of sanctions, um, you know, cut off from the West. I mean, he needs to he needs to come out of this with something. Yeah, you're right. So You're right. And, and I, I want to hold on to that point because I definitely want to talk about that a little later. You brought up something that is actually of interest to me that I was thinking about, which is, you know, how long could Russia keep it up, right? And because this is another one of those arguments, you know, that the, you know, the corporate media is kind of posing to suggest a Ukrainian win or, you know, hopes of a Ukrainian win. It's that they've slowed down. They can't keep up their supply lines. They're, you know, they're not going anywhere. They're halted, you know, and CNN ran this story, you know, that Putin, you know, signed this emergency conscription, you know, uh, of 134,000 new store uh, soldiers. Uh, and, you know, the, the narrative that they're putting out is, is to replace losses and to, you know, to bolster their army because the original 200K wasn't enough, right? Um, and I think this is kind of, you know, misleading. And Scott, Scott Ritter in that interview, he, he goes into this uh, quite a bit too, and I want to talk about it. And he says, you know, well, first of all, this isn't, um, this isn't anything unique or new. Uh, apparently, Russia has two rounds of conscription every year. Uh, and one, one happens in the fall. Uh, around October and the and another one happens in the spring around March, right? And you know this happens to be that spring conscription. And evidently, I haven't been able to find this online, but I'll just take him on his word for now. Is that the number of conscripts that they pull in every year is approximately the same amount as the one that we saw, you know, in this news article? And it's usually signed into order at the end of March, and they go through a selection process between April and June. They get two to four months of training, and then they can go ahead and, and go into war. And apparently, according to, you know, international laws, like conscripts are not supposed to go into, you know, actual war until after that period is over. You know, they're, 
it's possible that you know this has been the case for Russians, and this is something that we'll have to study afterwards. There's been a lot of reports about you know captured Russian soldiers saying that, hey, I just got out of basic like two days ago, you know, and then they sent me off into war. Um, that that's probably true. Uh, I think Scott tries to um, tone that down a little bit by saying like it's more than likely a mistake. He says you know, that were made by like lazy generals. Because a lot of the times these conscripts aren't used for like, Im like important or complex battles. They're used as like truck drivers and like, you know, logistics professionals and things like that. And maybe they just didn't have enough truck drivers one day and they were like, fuck it, send the new guy in. You know, like we just need somebody to drive a truck and bring in some logistics, you know. Um, I don't know about that. I I'm not going to speculate on that. But what I can talk about is the idea of an operational pause because this is this seems to be what's happening right now, you know. We went out of phase one, uh, according to the Russians, we're going into phase two. And during every phase, there's gotta be an operational pause to swap in fresh bodies, right? You can't expect these guys who have been fighting for a month, you know, to just be like, cool, let, let's keep going. You know, like they're gonna be tired. You know, machines are gonna break, tanks are gonna run out of fuel, you know, you name it, like shit's gonna go wrong and there needs to be a small pause in between. And we see this all over history for all major battles you know, I, I believe I was reading in in, uh, in the Eastern Front specifically, we want to talk about the Red Army. When they were pushing through, you know, the Germans were, uh, you know, really hitting Warsaw very badly. And the Russian advance was coming and they actually stopped east of uh, Warsaw for a long period, right? And everybody was like, well, what the fuck? Why aren't they going to help, you know, the Polish people in Warsaw? It was because they outran their logistics. I don't know about that. You don't think so? I think there were multiple explanations at play, and I think it was quite in the Soviets' interest to allow the Nazis to murder every single Polish national who had arms in their hands. It made it a lot easier for them to occupy Warsaw after. We have to remember that the Russians had fought a very uh, humiliating war uh, at the beginning of the USSR in which they were bloodied very badly by the Polish, and I don't think there was much interest uh, in that at all. Um, they did plenty of murdering of, of the Polish nobility and the officers. Uh, and government officials themselves. So it's possible that they had outrun their supply lines, but everything I've read is that there was a an understanding that why why do it? I mean, Harry Truman said it best: let them all kill as many of each other as possible. It only right. serves our interest. All right, I'll concede. I'll concede on that interest being aligned, but I think we can all agree that you know that that people need to, to swap out. I mean, talk about Definitely. sports. You know, I, you I think have... I think you have a strong case there, especially because. Uh, the Russians have been redeploying forces from the east of the country, mm -hmm. uh, peacekeepers from Ossetia and Abkhazia. So it's, it's right. clear they're having manpower issues. Definitely. Right. I, I think there is some credence to the idea that the Ukrainians are quote unquote winning. Some breaking news. There was a man who was trying to cross the U.S.-Canada border. This was recent. And he was caught with snakes in his pants. He was trying to smuggle pythons from Canada into the United States pretty crazy story and i'll leave you to create your own jokes about that but uh we have some other breaking news as well and that's harry's razors so harry's razors they're carving their own path in grooming to give you a better designed and better value grooming products harry saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products so they came up with their own way to make beautifully designed razors without the ridiculous prices the big brands charge guys i recently hit second puberty Guys who are in their mid-30s will know what I'm talking about. And I have to shave every single day now. 
So um, I was using these very crappy razors, and they would get dull right away. And often, I would end up using my wife's razors because my razors would get dull, which is bad for everyone. Well, hairy shaving products have changed things for me. So it's a really great quality shave. I never cut my face, and uh, my face feels nice and smooth. Also, their shaving cream smells really good. I really feel like a new man whenever I use my Harry's razors. These razors are some of the best out there. They're for an awesome price as well. They're German engineer blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. There are customizable delivery options for scheduled refills as low as $2. That's half is what you pay for other big brands. That's a really good price, guys. And uh, you have to go with this, the uh, subscription. So I use the subscription because it prevents me from having to go to my local pharmacy and then ask a person to help me because the razor is often behind some type of security plexiglass. Harry's razors are awesome. I love them. They're the best shave at the best price. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash brohistory. That's harrys.com slash brohistory for a $3 trial set. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you know, Putin had promised uh, 10 years ago that he'd be in Kiev in two weeks. Uh, at the outset, a lot of military specialists who I was reading said about a month would be about right. Uh, and that has not happened. That has right. not happened. Their logistics have been awful. Um, mm -hmm. They have overwhelming numerical and material superiority. And even a modicum of support uh, from NATO and the EU has made Ukraine pretty much indigestible. Um, as you said, they already aren't. Uh, at manpower enough that they could occupy cities. Maybe they don't want to. I find it hard to believe that you're going to be able to maintain a corridor cutting Ukraine off uh, from the sea to the south without establishing a hold over those cities. Uh, Mykolaiv and uh, Odessa, um, as you said, Mariupol's gone. So that's, yeah, that's not really... A... So the thing is, I, I totally agree with you. It does feel like evidence you know, that Ukraine is winning or at the very least stalling greatly Russia. And that's yeah. to their credit, and I want to give them that credit because they've been fighting fucking crazy hard. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I want to come back to the CSIS article that I, uh, that I reviewed before, and this is from before the war. So I got another quote here, and it talks about logistics in general. And, you know, let me just read it real fast, and I'll tell you what I mean. So it says, The initial attack will likely be well supported with artillery and air support, leading to several breakthroughs in Ukrainian defenses. However, once combat units expend their initial stores of ammunition, fuel, and food, the real test of Russian military strength will begin, including Russia's ability to sustain the advance of a massive mechanized force over hundreds of miles of territory. All of this is true and happened, right? So they got that spot on. They have been running out of fuel. They have been running out of food. They have been having logistical problems, right? So we, there was an expectation that if they're going to run for several weeks that they're going to need to resupply, right? So 
in, in one way, we can argue that the Ukrainians are doing a good job and they're winning because they've been able to do as, you know, as many experts have, have said, you know, would be a challenge, exploit that challenge from the Russians. On the other side, you can also argue that this is to be expected, like a halting uh, Russian forces is to be expected because they're going to need to resupply if they're going to hold up this line. So maybe this pause is less evidence of Ukraine's winning and more just a necessity of subbing out, you know, Russian forces. And, you know, it could also suggest with all this troop movement that you pointed out, I'm glad that you did, you know, they're moving troops from everywhere, you know, to this to now this eastern region. It might mean that they're just not ready to stop anytime soon. Yeah. Right? Well, he can't. Putin can't stop. Right. And Zelensky, you know, Biden had encouraged him at the outset to be completely obstinate in negotiations. And now he's basically like, uh, yeah, you know, it's totally up to the Ukrainians. But, uh, you know, we'll keep giving him arms. And obviously they shouldn't give anything to Putin because he's a monster. And, you know, the EU is trying to bring Ukraine in as we speak. I mean, I, I think in Washington's opinion, this has always been a win-win situation. That's how they viewed this. Um, I've written articles, too, about how I think this was always directed at teaching China a lesson, making an example. And really, uh, you know, the, the Washington strategic planners, they're willing to fight this thing down to the last Ukrainian. <laughs> I mean, they see this. They yeah. see this as completely in their interest. Yeah. And I have to give Henry a lot of credit. The instant this thing started, he sent me a text saying, so Poland is going to be the new Pakistan. Uh, to Ukraine's Afghanistan. And I was like, boy, I really hope not. And that's pretty much what happened. And it's what strategic planners are openly talking about, maintaining an insurgency in the event of an ultimate Russian victory from Poland. Hmm. So, And you've got the arms convoys that are continually flowing across the border there. You've had Russian missile strikes now on Lviv in the far west of the country. Um, there's been a lot of reports that Putin is trying to pressure Lukashenko into committing troops in the second phase to push to cut off uh, the border there, mm -hmm. um, which would be really dangerous. That, that, that at this point, obviously, this whole thing is a tragedy. It never needed to happen. Putin never should have invaded the country. That was a completely outrageous overreaction to what was going on. At the same time, my biggest concern now is an inadvertent escalation because of something, basically him hitting a convoy. Mm -hmm. Because he says these are acts of war. And the Biden administration, if you listen to him, they say, uh, well, yeah, technically we are kind of uh, technically, legally speaking, a combatant in this war because we're arming one side and we're training them and we're using economic weapons on, on one side. Right. Uh, but at the same time, there just seems to be this belief that, well, we, we've got it under control. We know exactly where the lines are. We know where, you know, we'll send them anti-tank missiles, but not tanks. We'll send them anti-aircraft weapons but not aircrafts. Mm -hmm. We know right where the line is, where that won't alienate Russia too much to the point where they feel like they need to attack uh, a NATO member, which would be suicidal, I think. I don't right. I don't know that they'll want to do it on purpose. Uh, but they might have they would, to add an They might have to. If, if, the, yeah. if, if this thing continues the way it has, I give the Ukrainians all the credit in the world. They're ferocious. And uh, the, the response of the West has been shocking. Uh, Sergei Lavrov actually said two weeks ago that Frankly, it was it was kind of surprising. Uh, I think he used the f a little more bombastic language. I think he was frankly mm -hmm. outraged um, by the way the West was behaving in terms of uh, basically locking it out of three hundred billion dollars of its uh, of its own money. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think that uh, there was also a lot of surprise that Germany started sending them lethal aid and mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know 
Uh, well, Henry had posted something in, in the in the Slack about Olaf Scholz and the, the dynamics of German politics right now. I think it's a, it's a contest of endurance at this point. Yeah. Can the Western bloc hold together? Will more sanctions break it apart? Italy and Hungary are saying no more sanctions. China, of course, is on the sidelines and going around the world telling everyone this is just, you know, the Americans have done this and they're going to make all of you suffer and... And then at home, Russia. Can Russia keep this up? A lot's being made of the ruble's apparent recovery, but this is mostly an illusion. Um, a lot of this just has to do with its balance of payments uh, shrinking in terms of imports while staying just about the same in terms of exports. Uh, it's also got to do with some uh, very serious interventions by the central government. So there's no reason to think that the ruble is actually in good shape, nor that the Russian economy is going to be in a good shape going forward. Yeah, um, we're still in the early phases of, of the devastation that's going to be laid down on the Russian economy. So for, for sure, definitely want to talk about that a little bit more uh, as well. Just want to wrap up this one, this kind of like section of talking about whether or not Ukraine is winning. And I've got one last point, and this is the point that like every lay person, you know, uh, seems to be hanging on. And I think kind of something that Henry was talking about. You know, when he was talking to um, you know, an individual that was a little less informed, right? But, you know, you see a lot of these pictures about, you know, and reports and videos of, you know, these Ukrainian forces using these crazy javelin missiles to crush these Russian tank columns, right? And that's like the, you know, like the, the, the sexy video that we see that, oh, the, yeah, Ukraine is winning, right? And th this part is actually real and very true, right? They are, like, in many cases, ambushing the shit out of these tanks and just decimating them right drone and, attacks on like motorbikes and stuff yeah, yeah. and, and on tank got, columns they have like loitering munitions now that the u.s has yeah. been um uh giving them which is basically a drone that flies around and waits for something to blow up you know which yeah. is crazy you know yeah um it, it, look nato has been training ukrainian battalions right i think up to 30 battalions they trained right up uh you know for the last six years right up until the, the war and that's a lot of people that they've trained, and they've been specifically training them to fight Russians, right? And they've been arming them to the teeth with weapons, specifically these javelins, but also man pads and other, you know, uh, anti-air. Uh, that um, that won't go wrong, right? That that will lead to the stability of Europe. <laughs> well, <laughs> remains to be seen, right? But that's going to be great when uh, <laughs> throwing. Uh, anti-aircraft and man pads in, in Europe, and who knows who will get their hands on those. That, that would be great. That makes me real comfortable flying in a commercial airline in Europe. Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, we're not, <laughs> let's not, let's not go down that rabbit hole just yet. The point though is, you know, that they've got training and really effective weapons against Russian tanks and things like that. You know, but uh, coming back to Scott Ritter again, you know, his point is that the Javelin is great, but it's a small arrow as he calls it, right? Small arrow, where a big arrow is like artillery and airstrikes, right? Having too much small arrows doesn't do shit for them long-term, right? Yeah, artillery strikes will basically kill all of those infantry with javelins or not, right? And as we've seen, when the Russians do decide to take the gloves off and, you know, unleash those MLRs, Everyone dies, whether they have a javelin or not. Yeah. You know? Um, now, again, just giving so much credit to the Ukrainians because they have been fighting hard. And they've proved that they're not to be fucked with, you know? Like, you don't fuck with Ukrainians and expect Lightly. to have easy win, right? Yeah. Very impressive. Very impressed. 
But winning individual battles like these isn't winning the war. And unless there's an agreement made, they're going to lose. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I think that the Russians have clearly always possessed the escalatory dominance in the theater. And it's a question of whether or not they're going to have to use it. In Mariupol, it was clear that the intention was always to go in there and kill everyone. Right. Um, the rest of the country, I don't, I don't think Putin wants to destroy cities like Kiev um, that are very important uh, to Russia and to Russians as well. Um, I, I th again, I think a lot of it comes down to the domestic politics of Russia. How threatened does Putin feel positionally if this war carries on and if the economy starts tanking, which it certainly will, um, we're going to talk about that. But uh, I just think, of course, if he unleashed the Russian Air Force and just let loose the missiles, of course, he could destroy Ukraine completely. And that was Dr. John Mearsheimer's prediction back in 2015, that if mm -hmm. we continued to arm the Ukrainians, if we continued to uh, encourage them to pursue a Western path, that eventually uh, Russia was just going to destroy Ukraine. Um, he didn't make an argument that they would occupy it or whatever, make it a colony. No, he said they'll just destroy it. They'll just destroy Ukraine. And the longer this goes on, I think the higher the probability that, that something like that does wind up happening um, because Putin can't back down. So, but how does Ukraine, how on earth, if you're Ukraine, can you agree to ceding all this territory? Uh, you know, I think that I think the, the correct decision and obviously I'm an American, so I, I have my own perspective on things. If I were a Ukrainian, I'd probably feel very differently. But at the very outset, taking the status of an Austria or a or a Finland as a neutral country, uh, accepting uh, the the autonomy or just letting Russia take the breakaway regions. I mean, they were always going to be a problem within the country and they were always going to be a pretext for Russia to insert itself uh, in the country and the absence of them in Ukraine actually strengthens Kiev electorally because it removes a lot of the pro-Russian uh, element from the country. So now though, the Russians have invaded and who knows how much territory they're going to want. Um, right. it, it varies, you, you know, the, the negotiations, those change day to day. And the, day and the longer hearing, it goes but... on, the more they're going to ask for. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so do you wind up with just a little rump Ukraine that's, uh, you know, basically cut off from the sea and confined to the west of the Dnieper. At that point, does the EU absorb them? Does NATO take them, you know, uh, abrogate its own rules uh, about territorial uh, integrity? I don't know. It's a, uh, I just, I think the war was just a total mistake and a, a horrible thing for Putin to have done. Um, and I'm someone who actually feels like the Russians had legitimate security interests in Ukraine and that there should have been a proper deal hammered out uh, to make sure that everyone felt secure and satisfied and that that was never our policy. Um, our policy was to arm them and turn them toward the West. And, you know, the Biden administration said at the outset, we know that Russia's gonna, that Russia's gonna invade Ukraine and try and destroy it. Uh, so Ukraine should not negotiate with Russia at all. It I seems agree. very clear. It's, it seems very clear that the Americans had one set of interests, whereas the Ukrainians should not have been listening to Washington and the Europeans 
probably shouldn't have been listening to Washington either. I think Olaf Schultz might be digging himself into a domestic hole here. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, this is a really good transition point, but before we do so, let's, let's take a quick break. Hey guys, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know I love tech. But one thing I haven't gotten into yet are NFTs. An NFT is basically a digital asset that represents objects like art, music, and video games. And I think the reason why I haven't gotten into NFTs myself is because nothing cool has caught my eye. Until now. I want to tell you about a collection of NFTs that if you're a fan of this show or of NFTs generally, you might actually be really interested in. The folks over at Those Bros NFTs have put together a super awesome collection of NFTs called The Cabal Kids. They've got your favorite characters like Barry O, Creepy Joe, Killery, and Little Georgie. And if you recognize those nicknames, you'll definitely get a kick out of these NFTs. But here's the thing that hooked me. When you buy one of their NFTs, you get a super sweet 24 karat gold-plated card with the artwork on it, linking the physical world with the digital one, and I find that really cool. And it's got the super useful QR code on it where you can scan it and be able to track its value, who owns it, and the wallets it's been in. Those bros NFTs have been nice enough to sponsor this episode of Bro History, so be a bro and check them out. You can find their NFTs on rarible.com and follow them on TikTok, YouTube, Discord, Instagram, and Twitter with the handle at Those Bros NFTs, where you can see hilarious videos and see all the awesome and impeccable gold cards that are changing the industry. One last thing before we get back to the show. They're giving away 10 free NFTs in the first 10 days of launch from April 2nd to April 12th, 2022. So don't miss out on your chance to get a free NFT. Again, they're at Those Bros NFTs, and you can find them on rarible.com. So... Just before the break here, uh, Joe, you were, you were talking about, you know, how you feel that the Russian, you know, invasion was just an, you know, inordinately ridiculous response to, you know, the, the situation on the ground. I was wondering if maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I want to talk about this particular subject for a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, it seems fairly obvious to me that the the West was trying to uh, provoke, provoke a reaction, basically. And for me, I think it's it's perfectly reasonable that Russia has a stake in, in, in Ukraine's security orientation. I mean, it's literally right on their border. Um, it, it, you know, the, the comparison always gets made. Would the U.S. just kind of wave their hand if the Chinese put a military base in Mexico? No, they're flipping out because the Chinese are putting a military base potentially in the Solomon Islands, which point those out oh, on a man. map for me. Thanks, yeah. right? No, it's completely ridiculous to act like no country has any right to any kind of security prerogative in their own immediate region other than the United States. That's ridiculous and unreasonable. But that seems to have been pretty much the policy going forward. At the same time, Putin needed to chill out. He had already made it impossible for Ukraine to join NATO. And the Germans and the French and the Italians were never going to let it happen anyway. So this was a total freakout, uh, a, a total overreaction to what were really, you know, reasonable concerns. You know, they don't want nuclear weapons on their doorstep. They don't want NATO forces in the country. Like, these are all things that should have been able to be talked talked about. Um, but at the same time, uh, the Trump administration started arming them, started behaving much more aggressively, much more provocatively. The Biden administration upped the ante even further. And it's possible that Putin felt like this is kind of the last straw. I just have to do it. I know we've talked about, um, oh, goodness, now I'm uh, 
was it, is it Goldstein who had written about Lyle Goldstein? Lukash- yeah, Lyle Goldstein had written the bit about Lush- Lukashenko's attempted ouster kind of being the last straw. Even so, I, I just feel like there was no threat to Putin's rule in Russia. I know there are a lot of uh, commentators who are also arguing that Putin did this to boost his domestic uh, popularity, that he was trying to recreate uh, the 2014 in- invasion and, and seizure uh, of Crimea and, and of the securing the autonomy of the Donbass and, and uh, the Luhansk and Donetsk uh, People's Republics. His popularity, if... if uh, <laughs> If internal Russian polls are to believe, be believed, I mean, he does enjoy majority support. Um, I mean, they're turning in numbers like 80, 80%. I think that's probably BS. Um, yeah. You get 15 years for uh, opposing the war, using the word war or invasion or anything like that. So I think that's obviously BS. But um, no, I don't think Putin was in any danger domestically. There was no chance that Ukraine was going to get nukes. There was no chance they were going to join NATO. Uh, he wanted some 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 guarantees, though, about the future. And the Biden administration said no. They said, if you want what's obvious, that Ukraine will never be in NATO, that we even say we have no plans for Ukraine ever to be in NATO, if you want that on paper, no way. Even though we know you're going to invade the country. From the Biden administration's perspective, I know a lot of us doubted that Russia was actually going to invade because it seemed like such an obvious overreaction and miscalculation but yeah uh totally in totally illegal um these are minor minor provocations really in the grand scheme of of playing playing great power politics which putin clearly sees the world in that way i mean this reminds me of nothing so much as the run-up to world war one where a small regional conflict blows up into a global conflagration Mm -hmm. when really the stakes involved were very minimal well, so except for I, want to, I want to talk more about that because I think you bring up a really good point, and it's whether or not this invasion was legal. Because depending on who you ask, you well, know, well, Danny, let me add something real quick. Go so, ahead. Um, I think Putin's reason for invading now is because the, the Ukrainian army has been juiced up big time since 2015. Um, you know, in 2015. The Ukrainian army was losing battles to the separatist rebels, and they were basically, you know, not a very coordinated and good military. They had demilitarized after the fall of the Soviet Union in exchange for economic benefits. That's why they had to rely on, you know, these ultra-nationalist volunteer battalions like Azov. Since 2015, and since these, this, the Ukrainian armed forces have been training with essentially the United States and Canada and and the UK, um, the military parity was decreasing between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Russia still enjoys that uh, advantage in military parity, but I think that window was decreasing. I think that's why he decided to invade because they may not be in NATO and they may never be in NATO, but they're basically in NATO. You know, they're being armed and trained by NATO. They're getting Javelin missiles. They've been trained, like, they're, they're basically de facto NATO. You can plug... Um, you, you can plug uh, German soldiers in NATO into a, a NATO into a Ukrainian army. Um, they have NATO level coordination, so I think that's where he was getting. That, that's the main reason why he invaded because they were losing that, and 
they just saw that as unacceptable to uh, they were becoming nato compatible i think is the word that you're looking yeah, for yeah nato compatible yeah. you can make that same argument for finland but they're not invading finland anytime soon you know <laughs> or at least i hope not well there, there's just more of a pretext with ukraine because i guess you're going to jump into the legality of the war and i mm-hmm. think what uh, the precedent that nato it's, itself has set with um you know with um r2p with wars in europe so i'm not even going to go into the iraq war um just with yugoslavia which we've been talking about you know they invaded yugoslavia and started bombing the serbs under the uh clause of responsibility to protect you know they hold had that to protect, thought, they hold, had to protect the Al- we'll, we'll get there hold yeah that the albanians thought. from being genocided <laughs> by the mm-hmm. by the serbians and then when we look back at it it wasn't really you know these mass graves with hundreds of thousands of people ended up mm-hmm. not being mass graves with hundreds of thousands of people they found out that you know upon forensic evidence that most of these people were military age men um they weren't like women and children like that was being spun in the news and it was something like ten thousand. still tragic. give it away the baby with the bathwater here henry <laughs> let's talk about that again let's talk about that again seriously because it's important i think what you're saying is absolutely important um i want to take it just pull back a little bit right so we can Try and set some. some and I'm not trying works. to justify it. I'm just saying that's a pre. That is just a, a. No, yeah, I'm with you, dude. I'm with you. You're like I'm in your. I'm on your side here. <laughs> okay. So. Um. All right. So you, let's talk about let's talk about what? whether or not this invasion is legal, right? Um. So let's let's pull back way back. The UN was basically formed, you know, at a high level principle, to prevent wars among countries. Right to, to, to make a governing body so that they can set some ground rules and stop war. That's like the, the whole point. And so technically speaking, there's a ban on all war. But there are some exceptions, some limited exceptions. And those exceptions are basically to try to address the reality that humans are humans and they're going to do war anyway. Right. And so what they try to do is lay some ground rules for how war can be initiated. Right. And so those two conditions that the United Nations, you know, charter on this ban of conflict are Chapter 7, right, um, and Article 51. So uh, I don't have too much uh, information. I don't want to go too deeply into Chapter 7 in particular. Uh, what I will say on Chapter 7 is that, you know, we can liken this to Desert Storm. You know, Chapter 7 was invoked uh, to help uh, remove Iraq from Kuwait after 11 attempts from the UN Security Council to get Iraq to s- stop fucking around, right? So he tried 11 times, 11 different resolutions to try to get them to stop, and they didn't. So they were like, all right, under Chapter 7, we as a world body, as the you know, UN um, you know, forces here, we have, to, we have to put a stop to this, right? There's some shit that I really wanted to talk about that's, you know, kind of crazy about Chapter 7 because, you know, we basically, the U.S. basically bribed a bunch of countries to say, like, just let us do this. You know, we'll give you some economic, you know, relief or, or, or you know, pluses, some carrots. They also offered some sticks, right? They were like, if you don't let us use Article 7 in this, we're going to fuck you up economically, right? So there's a whole, like, weird annoying part about chapter seven, which is why I just don't even want to talk about chapter seven. That could be its own fucking episode. Um, But I do want to talk about article 51 because article 51 is what Putin and specifically Russia are using as their, you know, their legal, you know, footing for this war. And so article 51 is, is basically 
you know, self-defense, right? If you are attacked, you know, you have a right to defend yourself. That's, that's what the Article 51 in a, in a nutshell is. Uh, and, you know, so I'll, I'll just read it. Uh, so it says, nothing in the present charter shall impair the inherent right or right of individual or collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. So basically it's saying, if somebody hits you, you can hit them back until the UN Security Council figures out how to stop, how to stop it, right? So it gives you the right to defend yourself up until the point that the UN Security Council steps in. Um, and then it says, measures taken by the members in the exercise of the right, this right of self-defense shall be immediately reported to the Security Council and shall not in any way affect the authority and responsibility of the Security Council under the present charter to take at any time such actions as it deems necessary in order to maintain or restore international peace and security. Again, what it's saying is, you know, this charter isn't stopping you from defending yourself. You can do that, but you got to tell us when this is happening. And once we figure out how to stop it, you can use all, until we, we figure out how to stop it, you can use all means necessary to, to defend yourself. But once we step in, we step in, right? So far, yeah, the UN Security Council isn't going to step in because Russia's on the UN Security Council, right? And China's a different story too, right? So Russia's using Article 51 as a legal claim for this invasion. But, but the crazy part about this is like, why does Russia get to attack Ukraine if Ukraine didn't attack Russia, right? That didn't happen. So apparently there's this like weird gray area and it's called preemptive self-defense. And for preemptive self-defense, you need preemunition, right? You need that eminent danger, right? And, and so I think what Henry was pointing out earlier which kind of supports this is that, you know, Ukraine has, is not NATO, but they're, they're as NATO as, Na as you can get, right? With the exception of Finland. Finland is probably more NATO than them, right? Um, they're compatible. They are armed to the teeth. They are fighting capable. They know how to fight us specifically. They've been trained on how to fight us specifically. There's an eminent threat. Um, so what is that imminent threat? You know, according to Russia, the imminent threat is Nazis or like nuclear weapons or like, you know, artillery shelling on the Donbass, right? They're NATO Those without a ring on it. That's what they are. Yeah, exactly. They're NATO side piece. Right, exactly. <laughs> NATO friends with benefits NATO or without benefits. With benefits. Uh, that really <laughs> wants to get into a more serious relationship, but they're just keeping you <laughs> yeah. on the side and using you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so under... Uh, Article 51 for the idea of collective self-defense and even pre, um, preeminent, uh, uh, preemptive self-defense, you need jurisdiction, right? So Article 51 talks about this notion of this collective defense and, you know, you have to be at least somewhat aligned with the parties that you are collectively defending against, right? So as an example, you know, uh, we are in NATO. Uh, the United States, that is. So any attack on a NATO member, we can use Article 51 to basically help out any other NATO member because we're aligned with them. So that's collective self-defense. So I guess Russia's arguing that they are now aligned with the LNR and the DNR specifically, right? And so they are collectively defending the those parties. I think this is a slippery slope. Uh, I, I think this is crazy. 
Uh, and, and I honestly, as a side note, I think we should really think about all of these articles and like, you know, really put a fucking line somewhere because there isn't a real clear line. Um, so NATO provided, you know, a, the case study for Russia here, right? And, and this is where I wanted to let you talk, Henry. <laughs> you know, in 99, you know, NATO attacks Serbia, you know, when it aligns, uh, when it aligned with Kosovo, but you basically went over it, right? You know, it's kind of a weird scenario, very vague, very, you know, legally. Uh, illegal. Uh, illegal. Unsure. Yeah. Yeah. Quite illegal. illegal. Right. So they're like, well, you guys did it, you know, in Kosovo. You, you had raised this point because I went back. Anytime we're going to talk, I always make sure I've re-listened to all your recent episodes. And you and Danny were having a back and forth about this, about how, geez, doesn't it seem like all the Russian people are falling for the same lines that the Americans fell for? WMDs, mm -hmm. responsibility mm -hmm. to protect. Like, I think Putin did this on purpose. Mm -hmm. He's fighting a battle of world opinion. And right. most, uh, <laughs> certainly from China's perspective, there is no difference between what's gone on here and what happened in Serbia or what happened in Iraq or what happened in uh, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina before that. There's no difference here. No different than the U.S., uh, you know, mining Nicaraguan harbors, ignoring mm -hmm. international criminal court rulings. So Putin, you know, gave these, I think, very tongue in cheek uh, reasons. Like, I think yep. he was purposefully flouting the idea that like oh what you did this is it not okay oh mm -hmm. geez we didn't realize you weren't supposed to invade other countries on weak pretexts <laughs> oh we're really no so right. i mean obviously i i think the legal case is you know if you want to make a legalistic argument i think depending on where you're sitting sure but like it's obviously bs just like the also, u.s interventions were bs yeah, and, 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 you know, folks that are on the Russian side of this argument are going to point out all of the bullshit that the United States has done. I just want to make very clear right here and right now, we hit the United States all the fucking time for all the stupid shit, illegal shit, and terrible shit that they do. So, but we're not talking about that today. That's a whataboutism. You know, we're talking right now about whether or not Russia, Russia's invasion is illegal. And we can, we can have both conversations, but today we're having this conversation, right? And, and in this conversation, I want to poke some holes in whether or not this is legal, because I don't think it is. Joe, I don't think you think it is. Henry, no. I, I, yeah, none I of these are legal. Either, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, the I, thing where is, I'm at is that I think that there could have been other options for if you wanted to escalate yeah. things, there could have been other ways to escalate things. Like, why not yeah. start with uh, stopping the flow of gas to Europe instead of invading? You yeah, know? Right. like that could have been a more reasonable approach. Like, hey, we're going to actually... Uh, not provide you with gas this winter and you're gonna have to deal with that political outcome could have tried but, shutting um, off the power in ukraine like they had done previously there were lots of much more reasonable options and this invasion was of course illegal and that's why right. i thought that this was wasn't going to happen i thought there were going to be other ways that they could escalate things like you know they could even have just like played peekaboo with some submarines off the coast of like uh, the Odessa off the Atlantic yeah. Ocean, like, hey, we're here. You know, maybe you want to take us seriously. We we can escalate these things to the maximal level if you if you want. And then there was mm -hmm. also that uh, base in Venezuela. Um, I thought there were other ways that they mm -hmm. could handle this. Uh, I find well, I find it kind of interesting that you that you seem to think that there is some kind of real case for saying that this might not be totally illegal danny why don't you make your case for uh for this not being illegal well i want to be i want to be very clear i think it's totally illegal oh okay but, okay 
But you if, think there's some but, gray area here. Uh, with that being said, I'll start by saying that I think a couple of lawyers went up to Putin and was like, you got to do these things in order for us to, to move forward with this war. I, th- I think some, some They don't lawyers have war in like, Russia. Come on. <laughs> no, I mean, don't like, you watch you know, just, They were like, they don't you know how lawyers are. They're like, you can't do shit unless you, 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 gotta, you have to check these boxes. Please check these boxes before you go and do anything. And then after that, do whatever the fuck you want, you know? Um, and we'll figure it out after. So what I, what I want to make the case for is that, you know, I think this is all premeditated. I think we've all been talking about it, you know? Russia massed these troops on the border of Ukraine well before Luhansk and Donetsk were declared a thing. You know, I mean, they, they had declared their own thing a while ago, but, you know, the, the, hear me out on this. I think this is all premeditated, and I think this is what makes it illegal. Um, so in September 2014, the first Minsk agreement was signed, you know, by representatives of the OSCE, Ukraine, Russia, and of course, the, you know, the heads of the LNR and the DNR. But they did so without recognizing the status of the LNR and the DP, uh, DNR, right? So they weren't recognized then, even though they said that they were on a thing, they were their own thing. So from, from 2014 through just before the war, LNR and, D- and DNR, they, they just weren't recognized as a thing by anyone officially, except for the people in those territories themselves. Now, I want to make this clear. I'm not saying that not being recognized by a UN nation state doesn't make you a thing, right? I made a very long argument for Ukraine being a thing, regardless You're of what You're just saying the says. reality of the situation of like, they're not internationally recognized. Exactly. And if I we're talking about law, that. we have to like go on these legal definitions, right? Um, so... You know, what I am saying, though, is that if we want to consider Russian Article 51 claim as a legal jurisdiction, you know, uh, for for the invasion, then you have to consider the legal status of, you know, LNR and and DNR, respectively, if you want to make that claim that Russia is coming to the collective defense of these people preemptively, right? Uh, And you also need to consider its relationship to Russia, the LNR and the DNRs, and its alignment with Russia when you're making the collective part of the argument, right? How are they aligned? How are they officially aligned? And the facts are that LNR, DNR weren't officially recognized and overwhelmingly still are not officially recognized. So you can't really say that Russia is coming to the preemptive defense of a sovereign nation here, not legally speaking at least, right? Even though they're trying to make the argument. And it's also a fact that Russia hadn't been officially aligned with LNR and, and DNR until literally the day before the conflict, right? So really that alignment to me seems like a bunch, like I said, a bunch of lawyers came in and said, hey, we know you're trying to invade, but before you go and do that, I need you to say we are recognizing the states of LNR and DNR because otherwise we won't be able to use this Article 51 claim and it'll create a nightmare for us, so please just do that. And then Putin was like, hmm, okay. Maybe I'll do that, but he just like waited until the very fucking last minute to do it because admittedly, it kind of makes sense. If he did it any sooner, the Ukrainians would have more time to prepare for an invasion. Maybe the West would be able to prepare a little better for that because that would be a clear sign, right? Russia now recognizes these breakaway states. Now everyone's like, oh shit, they can use this, you know, Article 51 preemptive, you know, collective defense nonsense, right? So that's what they did. So on 21st of uh, February, day before, you know, uh, uh, the invasion, Russia becomes the first UN member state to formally recognize LNR and and DNR. And it gives them 
you know, th those regions a small amount of legitimacy as a state. And it also creates that jurisdiction for the collective defense, right? But as I said before, Russia started amassing these troops like a year before that official alignment. So this was premeditated murder, in my opinion. I want to talk about premeditated murder. I, I know it's different, but you know, in, in, in the U.S., some states will allow you to kill someone in self-defense with no, with no issue, right? Not all of them, but many of them. And it even allows, in certain cases, for individuals to kill other individuals who present like this imminent you know, risk of killing others, right? You can think of it this as like the, the whole good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun you know, argument. But in all other cases, when human beings kill other human beings, that's murder and it's illegal, right? And it's especially heinous and there's harsher penalties for premeditated murder. So that's when you planned to kill somebody, right? Instead of just killing them in the heat of the moment. And if, and if in a court of law they can prove that you made these plans to kill somebody, you're going to get a much, much harder you know, penalty and you won't be able to claim self-defense. So I think, I, I know that war is different, and I also know that the rules are different, but if you just think about this from, from this way, this was entirely premeditated and not at all organic in any way from my view. You know, they, they artificially created a legal standpoint by doing the bare fucking minimum to check those boxes, and then they went, they went ahead with the plan that they were going to do anyway, right? It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Now, this gets a little weird, right? Because there are other things, you know, that come up that create more legal, you know, uh, ammo, but layer on top of this Article 51. And one of them that's kind of common and popular is that Zelensky made some off-the-cuff remarks, fucking stupid remarks, at that Munich security conference about needing nuclear weapons. And this is something that they layered on top of it. 
they were like, oh, he's going to get nukes. So there's your preemptive strike reason. Well, let, right? let me add something to that. Yeah, Zelensky, the it. point that Zelensky was making at that conference was like, hey, listen, we gave up our nukes in the 1990s. And we got a guarantee that our security was going to be taken care of. And mm-hmm. what's happening right now. Um, Hold on. As long as we're making the legal arguments, I just want to be clear that they received security assurances, oh, not okay. security guarantees. I know it sounds okay. semantic, but actually those two are very different things. So continue. That, that, is, that is a good point. I guess what's the difference? An assurance is just like, yeah, sure, handshake deal versus... An assur- well, an assurance is meant to provide a legitimate recognized avenue for involvement. This is one of the reasons that planners felt confident about being able to pump Ukraine full of weapons even after the, the conflict started is that Russia signed the same memorandum saying that in the event of someone violating Ukraine's uh, sovereignty, all these parties have the right to intervene as they see fit. So the United States, the United Kingdom, and Russia. So it was totally up to the United States. If the United States had chosen to uh, involve itself directly militarily, I mean, it's on paper. The Russians signed it. So um, that's that's basically the distinction there. Is one of them is supposed to legally, like, like, uh, um, like Article 5 for NATO. Like, that's a security guarantee. Or at least it's supposed to be. That means you get attacked, the U.S. fleet is is inbound. Um, Japan enjoys the same relationship. Ukraine is supposed to enjoy a set of security guarantee, uh, assurances similar to that enjoyed by Taiwan. Um, although, of course, Biden had uh, said earlier this past year that actually, no, there was no ambiguity there. We would definitely fight him. Uh, then, of course, he walked that back. So who knows? But just to be clear, there there, there is yeah. a difference between assurances and guarantees and I, th- I think it was very legitimate of Zelensky to question whether or not giving up nukes was a good deal. I also think, like Danny said, that was very ill-advised. That was a gift. Right. That was a gift to Putin. Um, mm-hmm. So that's an, interesting, that's an interesting legalistic argument about why technically, maybe, kind of, you could make the case that this is legal. But I, I still think it relies on very weak precedents that we all agree were, were inappropriate and illegal in the first place. And... Like you said, this was obviously premeditated, and I, I think it was like Dan, like Henry said, uh, the threat was becoming real, um, and so Putin basically set up a situation where he thought that. I think he really thought the West would deal. I think he thought they'd deal, and uh, they did not, and they just kind of left him to. They called his bluff, basically, like, okay, go ahead and invade the country then. We're not going to give you anything you want. We're not going to take anything you say seriously. So, and so he well, did. He so he did. I don't think Putin wanted to invade Ukraine. I think that this was a very suboptimal outcome of all the possibilities. But he was prepared to act on it. So, like you said, he was prepared to, uh, you know, premeditatedly invade Ukraine, mm-hmm. kill a bunch of people. So, and and those those are the only checkboxes that I've seen that they checked before the war started. Now, there's more things that are coming out that are kind of like this fishing expedition for like, let's now backfill a bunch of reasons why this is legal, right? Yeah. And I want to talk about some of those. Some of these are a little spicy. Let's try and be, you know, as civil as possible about some of these things and not get into too much conspiratorial, you know, rabbit holes. But we got to talk about the biolab issue, okay? 
We've got to talk about the biolab issue because this is one of those fishing expeditions. This is one of those things that they're, you know, that wasn't a part of their stated reasons beforehand. But oh, and also they got these weird biolabs, and I think they're trying to fuck with us. I don't want to get into too much of the 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 weirdness about this, but I do want to talk about it. So Scott uh, Ritter on that on that uh, interview, he he talks at length about this, and and I want to summarize some of these points. You know, he basically takes the U.S. on on their word on these biolabs. For those that don't know, there are something like 26, you know, um, biolabs that are set up, you know, from, you know, the U.S. and other Western countries uh, that are doing research on potentially hazardous pathogens and, and other, you know, uh, viral things, you know, basically to, to try and figure out solutions for these things before they become a problem, right? And so Scott says that, he thinks that this, you know, was initially set up to handle a lot of these former carryover Soviet pathogens that were in the country uh, and, you know, maintain those because they, they've already had these labs and these dangerous, um, you know, uh, uh, chemical and biological uh, materials in the country. So they, they needed to maintain this status quo and keep up, you know, these research labs because there was a risk that these things can get loose and that's important to keep a cap on it. But they also, he also says that it, it was also an effort to provide gainful employment to these former Soviet scientists, right? These guys are well-trained in this specific area of bio, you know, um, uh, of working in bio labs, right? And the fear was that if you don't give them something to do with the skill sets that they have, that they might migrate to a hostile nation you know, and do this work for somebody else where it can be weaponized, where they can't keep keep an eye on them and like, you know, force it over. So that was like Scott's explanation for the biolabs. You know, so the intention of a biolab, just generally speaking, is legitimate, right? It's mm -hmm. to figure out what could be potentially dangerous for humans and, you know, try and find vaccines for them, try to find treatments for them, or any other solutions to mitigate risk associated with bio, uh, biological threats, right? So I think it's, uh, we shouldn't view biolabs as inherently evil or, you know, weaponized or anything like that. I think they're, uh, they are legitimate. Now, what it doesn't explain is why are there 26 of them in Ukraine? Do they really need 26 biolabs? And Scott offers a simple answer to this and it's money so there's a whole industry around this shit you know it's kind of like in the the same vein as the industrial you know uh, military complex and um the idea is that you know it's hard to get funding for especially in in these foreign countries for you know actual weapons uh contracts but if you pitch to you know these governing bodies that are allocating money especially in, specifically in the US hey we want to set up a bio lab not for like military reasons but to like prevent illness and prevent you know the next pandemic and things like that for the most part those those propositions those proposals sail right through they're like oh yeah cool yeah set one up go for it so there's actually this kind of negative incentive to keep setting up more and more of these things and as you set up a biolab, you need to now import a bunch of samples of things that are potentially dangerous so that they can, you know, work on it. So you set up a biolab, you need something like, let's call it, let's say anthrax, which is, you know, deadly pathogen, really, really bad. You know, everyone's scared of that shit. It can be weaponized, but 
generally speaking, this occurs naturally in the wild. Like you can go out into the deer in the forest, you know, a dead deer in the forest will have anthrax on it, right? And so the idea is that you need samples of this anthrax so that you can figure out how, you know, how can this strain be mutated? How can it uh, affect human beings? What can we do to try to create a vaccine around it? But you need the material, you need the anthrax in order to, to, to do this research. And if you set up a brand new one, you need more anthrax, right? So there's now 26 of these. People are making a shit ton of money on them, right? Uh, and there's government money flowing through them. So obviously they're importing a lot. And that's kind of scary, right? Like that's legitimately scary. We're just like creating all of these, you know, potentially dangerous sites. Uh, but again, this is, a, this is a fishing expedition for a reason, right? Uh, they come in, they, they figure out, oh shit, we could use this. The Russians are like, we can use this. They, they have all these chemical and biological pathogens that, and then, then we go into like the conspiracy theory stuff about them trying to find strains of shit that only affects Russians and, and <laughs> you know, how they, vectoring it against like how they can put it on a bird and make him fly over into Russia and, and all this other And how they can target sl Slavs only? Oh, target Russian Slavs specifically, which I think is really difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I don't want to get there. Point though is that there's this thing. I, I, I accept that explanation that it's it's just kind of part of uh, you know this industrial complex and it's m mainly a money making scheme rather than it being like a hostile weapons lab. Um, mm -hmm. That just sounds like the Occam's razor, right? Uh, um, explanation for it. That's right. Yeah, I agree. That was well said, Henry. We have no clue which is which, and. Uh, Seems like a perfectly reasonable explanation at this point. It certainly wasn't given as a factor weighing into the consideration of the invasion beforehand, which I think speaks to Danny's point about it being, uh, you know, a post hoc, uh, you know, fill in the blank. Oh, yeah, we're also doing it because of this. I think with everything else going on, it's, uh, you know, more of a distraction than anything. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm, I'm honestly not very concerned about the bio labs. I'm way more concerned about a nuclear war than that. <laughs> like well, okay, we could talk about the nuclear war. I wasn't, I wasn't planning on it, but you know, the, the the Russians are making this case, this argument that all right, they've got what three reactors, right? In those reactors, in the light, in the pools of water, there's spent nuclear fuel, and of that spent nuclear fuel, something like 10% of that uh, radioactive waste is you know, uranium-230, whatever, the, the bad one that you can use for nuclear weapons. Uh, and that they're making this argument that you can go in, grab those spent fuel rods, crush them up, put them in a bomb with a bunch of other explosives and create a dirty bomb. Like, that could be possible. Like, is it is it possible? Yeah, sure. Totally. But where's the... Where, there's... there's it, to this day, I've still not found any evidence of any movement towards that at all. The only thing that we have under, under this, uh, uh, you know, rationality is the off-the-cuff comment that Zelensky makes at this, you know, Munich Security Conference, which we've already explained is more of him just bringing up like, "Hey, what the fuck? You guys were supposed to give me some assurances because we gave us gave up our nukes. What gives?" Well, Danny, and that's let me all. jump in real quick. So, yeah. the the nuclear pretext. I think if, if Putin really thought that they were trying to build a nuclear bomb or there was potential for them to get some type of nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons getting in the hands of radicals in Ukraine. 
they wouldn't have had the same approach with their invasion where they're kind of, of course not. you know, have mm-hmm. the gloves on right now. They would have just went yeah, right. on and carpet bombed Kiev and just been brutal in their invasion and instead of what they're right. doing right now. And, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, not, I don't want to say they're not, I'm not trying to downplay the brutality of the war because, of course, every war is brutal. But, you know, they're not, besides Mariupol, they're not leveling cities. They're, you know, they're trying to avoid civilian deaths and stuff like that. Um, but I, I right. think if they went, if there was like that real pretext, they would have went in there, uh, a lot more, uh, savagely, um, than they did. You're right. Their actions, their actions kind of give us an indication. They wouldn't have walked in the there with like grunts expecting and like, okay, like Ukraine's going to switch sides now. We're going to have like this limited type of operation. Um, and we're going to walk into the country and then. The Ukrainian army is going to be demoralized that we're actually doing it. And, you know, these mayors of these cities are going to give in and, and you know, try to negotiate separate deals with Russia. Um, I don't think they would have had that approach. Um, no, no, you're right. Their, Joe, their what actions, do you think? Their, their actions t- tell tell us what what that means. But, yeah, Joe, what, what do you think about that? About About the nature of the Russian campaign so far? The nuclear bit, like whether oh, or not they'd um... no, no, that was that was nonsense. Of course, who's who's going to help them? I mean, what they can make a couple of dirty bombs. I mean, Russia's got more nukes than anybody else. I mean, it would make no sense for the Ukrainians to to even try. Um, and there's no one that was willing to help them, and they don't have the abilities to to really put anything sophisticated together in a short period of time. Like you said, maybe they could scrape together enough material for a few dirty bombs, but that that would just be the end of everything. Um, mm-hmm. for Ukraine. I mean, that wouldn't even be a question. Uh, so that would just be silly. Um, his comments, like you said, they were within the context of talking about the the deal that was made with the Clinton administration in the 1990s. And, uh, you know, I, I feel bad for the Ukrainians because I feel like they kind of got let on uh, in the run-up to this. Um, so... Uh, That's been yeah, the, the Russians. The Russians have the Russians have definitely not engaged in a kind of shock and awe campaign of just blowing everything up. At the same time, though, uh, the campaign hasn't gone that well, and there has been a definite intensification in the urban areas of just indiscriminate shelling because the nature of urban combat is such that you don't want to expose your forces to it if you can at all avoid it. And if they've from the get go decided that if it's not going to fall easily then we'll just, uh, you know, shell cities instead of actually trying to occupy them. I mean, I don't know how long this is going to go on, but I mean, certainly the things, the, the reports and the images and the death tolls are, are very disturbing. And, uh, you, know, the, uh, you know, you said we, we don't need to engage in any whataboutism, but obviously uh, every death is a tragedy. And at this point, I just don't know what more death is accomplishing. I don't know that there's any uh, future uh, other than uh, neutrality for Ukraine and some sort of territorial concessions uh, to Russia, um, just as a recognition of the facts on the ground. I think right now the Biden administration's strategy is to hopefully just wait them out. Uh, Jake Sullivan was kind enough to say the quiet part loud a couple of weeks ago, ago uh, even before Joe Biden went ahead and said the quiet part really out loud in Poland. Um, the aim here is to put pressure on Putin to make his regime collapse. Uh, this would remove Russia's key ally. It would also signal to Beijing that when the West acts in a unified manner, it has the economic capacity to bring down an authoritarian regime. And so they're in no hurry. Uh, I think the words he used were uh, 
we're counting on the Russians to connect the dots in the long term. Uh, yeah, hmm. exactly. So uh, a quick resolution to the conflict. Boris Johnson has already said, speaking very out of turn, because, of course, he is uh, the American's puppet. He, he doesn't he doesn't actually have any independent policy prerogatives. He said, well, yeah, if they uh, withdraw from Ukraine, then the sanctions should immediately go away. Uh, Anthony Blinken and Biden have both been very dismissive of any ideas like that. Um, because, yeah, this is this is a trial. This is a trial run uh, for the bigger contest. Uh, Russia is not a threat to U.S. hegemony. China is in the minds of U.S. security planners. I don't think that's a mystery or a surprise to either of you guys. You spend plenty of time researching and, and looking at that stuff. I think the situation with Ukraine and Taiwan was highly analogous. I think the Biden administration saw a lot of U.S. military security clout riding on the outcome, and that is why he refused to give Putin anything. And I think the long-term calculation was the invasion will undermine Russia's uh, position internationally and undermine Putin's regime and serve to show Beijing that they don't want to mess around with us. And I do think there's a lot to be said for that, uh, however um, amoral these type of calculations may sound. I, I agree. And I think this is a really great transition to like the last uh, kind of topic that I wanted to cover here. And it's not necessarily, you know, Russia or Ukraine specifically. It's, you know, kind of the ancillary effects. Um, and I want to talk about China specifically. Uh, and I want to pitch to you guys an idea that I'm starting to come around to. Uh, and just kind of talk about those implications. Um, and the idea is that I think that China is the key to ending the conflict in Ukraine. So let, let, me, let me give you some background for, for why I'm thinking this. So China has economic ties with both Ukraine and Russia. China is neutral in the sense that they're not in the West or in NATO. China isn't in direct conflict with either of these nations. China's also a major economic and military power. So, you know, them brokering a deal would be taken more seriously than, say, you know, we joke about the Taliban peace talks, right? Uh, you know, that that would be a more serious um, broker of, of peace there. And so they have these vested interests in a resolution to this conflict on both sides. So China has this vested interest in, in, in Russia because, you know, confronting the Russians directly on this war would have been bad for China. You know, Russia and the West basically teamed up, you know, to take on the Germans and the Japanese in World War II, only later to become adversaries of one another when the war was over, once the enemy had been destroyed. So the idea could be, at least some in some circles, that if China teams up with the West and the rest of the, the world to, you know, it, let's say economically sanction Russia, right? They're not going to go out into you know, field war with Russia, but if they helped out with these economic sanctions, then that would weaken Russia. It would cause it to implode and it would basically tip the scales in the West's favor, because now they have one less adversary, and it would potentially open them up to becoming a stronger adversary in the future with the United States. Right now, with Russia out of the way, we can now focus on um, on China. I think I saw a tweet a little while ago from um, some official in China, and she said something like, hey, can you help me um, 
kill your friend so that we can focus on killing you later, you know, <laughs> uh, which I thought was really funny. Uh, and th that's kind of the idea behind this. And it's a little bit in the minds of the Chinese people right now. Um, but, but outside of that, you know, the, the imminent, you know, threat that they have there, China also has this growing relationship with Russia economically and militarily, as we've discussed on the show at length, you know, the more that, you know, the West pushes on Russia and China respectively, the closer they've been growing, if not for anything other than necessity, right? There is a clear and present need for them to be friends. And, and, and that's kind of the relationship with China, but, uh, with Russia, but China also has this vested interest in Ukraine as well. They have major investments in the Ukraine. You know, uh, they're super important for their Belt and Road Initiative. Ukraine, not the Ukraine. The, thanks for the correction, Henry. <laughs> Ukraine. Um, and, you know, they're, they're also, uh, fun fact, they're Ukraine's um, biggest trading partner, right? So they have a huge amount of interest there. They don't want to leave them high and dry because, frankly, it's just bad for business for them. Um, and since the start of the invasion, China has been sending humanitarian aid to Ukraine, um, you know, things like uh, food, medical supplies. Um, they've been buying a shit ton more barley from them just to help them economically in that way. Also baby formula and a bunch of other things. So they've been pretty good about this. Uh, and, and um, you know, the Chinese ambassador recently was on um, Face of the Nation. I think it was a few weeks ago. And he was asked uh, the question, why doesn't she just call Putin and tell him to back off, right? Which is kind of like a silly question, like as if, oh yeah, she's just going to call him one day and it's going to stop the, the whole war, right? But, you know, he, according to the ambassador, at least, and I'm not able to independently verify this, but according to him, she did call Putin on the second day of the invasion and allegedly asked him to reconsider peace talks. That's all he asked. He didn't say stop, but he said, maybe you should think about peace talks again. And from, you know, from that second day of the invasion, you know, on to now, there has been at least four rounds of peace talks that have occurred. Now, whether or not that phone call has any impact on the peace talks is unknown, right? So I can't verify that at all. But at least they can virtue signal a little bit to say, hey, we tried to help. We gave them a call. We said, hey, you should, you should talk about peace. And, and that's what we're doing to sue for peace. Um, but, you know, outside of Ukraine, China's also got this trade with EU, and that is 10 times the size of their trade with Russia, trade with Russia in general. As we all know, the EU is very much anti-Russian or pro-Ukrainian, whichever way you want to spin it. So leaving Ukraine out for a bit, China has this like economic incentive to hash out a fair deal between the Ukrainians and the Russians that the EU would approve of. So there's a lot of money on the table for them. So them brokering a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine holds positive interest for Russia in general, no matter which way, which angle you want to look at it from. You know, Russia stays strong. They can stay in the West's crosshairs. <laughs> you know, Ukraine maintains uh, sovereignty, which appeases the West and the EU, albeit maybe a bit smaller than before the conflict, right? Um, and this enables China to continue to make money from both Ukraine, Russia, and the EU and, and the West, etc. Or maybe even profit a little bit on Ukraine because maybe now they can increase their support to Ukraine and help them rebuild shit, you know. Their standard operating playbook, right? This is in their interest to make this war go away. But specifically, it's in their interest to make this war go away and them be the reason why the war goes away, right? 
because there is a cost, I think, to this. And the cost comes on the West's shoulders. You know, solving this issue strengthens China on the world stage. They're like, hey, look at us. We're the peace-loving nation of China. We brokered the, the great deal between Ukraine and Russia. But it also you know, promotes some economic growth for them. You know, being the broker of peace in this initiative, I think it gives them substantial leverage with obviously both Russia and Ukraine uh, you know, if, if a fair deal is reached. They're like, hey, remember that time when we stopped a you know, major military invasion? Great. So can we get a good deal on that barley? <laughs> you know, can we get a, a, a fair deal on, on this Belt and Road Initiative? Can we get some cheap uh, liquefied natural gas from you, Russia? You know, well, we let's, you let's hear what Joe way. thinks on this. Yeah, let's hear it. Well, I, I think that at the outset, a lot of people put their hopes in China resolving this conflict. And I heard the same thing you did about Xi kind of reaching out right at the initial start of the invasion. And I don't disagree that were China able to broker a peace along the lines you just detailed, that would be a tremendous victory for China. But I also don't think the status quo right now is at all contrary to China's interest. I think it's sir I think they have found a way to tow the line and uh, basically gather in all the rewards uh, that were to be had for this. Um, just to give you a few examples of what I mean, um, as long as this war is going on and as long as the war ends with Russia effectively cut off from Europe, that really makes the Russian relationship a lot more easy for Xi to manage. Because mm -hmm. Xi is not looking to help Russia. He's not looking to give them market money for their gas or their oil. They're talking about buying this stuff for $35 a bottle, of dollars a barrel. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking, they're, they're looking for the cheapies. China is looking out for itself. Russia is a useful tool in the battle against American hegemony, but that's pretty much it. Um, so as long as this war is going on, it's not in China's interest to push Russia to resolve it, especially not if it makes Putin look weak domestically. Xi has uh, pretty much tied his and Putin's fates together uh, in the near term. And I don't think he was particularly thrilled about the invasion and certainly not with how it's been going. But China's economy is uh, going to hold up pretty well, uh, at, at least at this point. Um, they can avoid the secondary sanctions pretty easily. And they've been on a speaking tour in the developing world, basically telling everyone, look, this is what you can expect out of American leadership. Look, they provoked mm -hmm. Russia into this terrible war in the Ukraine, and now you're all going to starve to death, and food prices are going to go through the roof, and gas prices are going to go through the roof, and it's just all, it's all terrible. And if China were managing things, gosh, things would be much better. See, we're trying to be fair to everyone, recognizing the concerns of both, giving aid to both. I mean, really, China has found the perfect sweet spot, and the EU has nothing to say mm -hmm. to them. Germany is going to talk back to China? That's crazy. They can't. Mm -hmm. They have nowhere else to put their uh, uh, manufacturing capacity other than mm -hmm. in China. So the idea that they're going to really talk tough with China is, is I think that's a, that's a hope and a prayer too far. Um, already, Europe has, has already shown some real possibilities of fracturing if even more sanctions are put on. Italy, Hungary, and Germany uh, especially are showing some very strong local movements. The Poles have said they'll freeze to death. 
Uh, they <laughs> said they'd cut off the natural gas and, and the oil tomorrow from Russia. And of course they would. Of course they would. But that's the whole problem with the EU, right? There is no joint foreign policy. And when it comes to military policy, that basically runs through Washington because NATO hung around, uh, you know, that was just a horrible decision. The Europeans needed to take responsibility for managing their own security affairs. Um, but uh, no, I, I think China's in a great spot right now. I don't see any reason for them to say no to brokering a deal like what you just suggested. But I don't think Putin is in the mood for that right now. As you said, it looks like he's gearing up for the second phase of the offensive. Um, and right now, China is only gaining uh, from this. Saudi Arabia is floating the idea of starting to price uh, oil in yuan. Um, just in the last several years, actually, uh, there's been a huge move away from uh, who's holding uh, U.S. treasuries. Um, it, uh, about 10 years ago, it was about 79% of world currency reserves were U.S. dollars. Now it's, now it's down to around 50%. And I think some of the moves the Biden administration has made are going to push de-dollarization further. I'm not saying the yuan or the ruble is going to become king of the world. That's ridiculous. But mm -hmm. I do think you're going to see a lot more currency diversification. And this is yeah. uh, this is a, a potential area that I don't think gets talked about very much because people talk about the higher prices Americans going to pay for gasoline and and food due to uh, fertilizer shortages and stuff. Look, in the long term, if it becomes difficult for the United States to finance its debt at the interest rates that it's doing now, meaning if the demand for dollars decreases substantially, um, I mean, the, the, it, servicing our national debt at thirty trillion dollars is going to be impossible. Mm -hmm. So the the, the dollar as the world reserve currency is an exorbitant privilege, which we have obviously abused a great deal. Uh, but if we want to dig our way out, we need people to continue to buy U.S. treasuries. That's just 100 yep. percent. They have to. Uh, Agreed. So I think that, you know, locking Russia out of its foreign reserves, I think a lot of authoritarian regimes looked around like, oh, man, did you know they were about doing that? China, Saudi Arabia, and like, look, pricing pricing oil in dollars, that was crucial. That was absolutely crucial to recreating the same contours of a global economic system that existed during the Bretton Woods era. So mm -hmm. if that goes away, I don't know, you might see living standards really take a ding uh, in, in the United States. Well, so. you, you, you see that evidence, you know, already unfolding, you know, notably most OPEC nations like Saudi Arabia that you pointed out, you know, and others have declined to vote for or abstain from voting from the UN resolution that condemned Russian invasion. Yeah. And so, so did China, right? They, mm -hmm. they also abstained. And it's, it's a telling, it's telling because it feels that they're setting up this kind of quasi multipolarity of world power. Yeah. Right. Already, you're starting to see people break from the fold, the United States hegemonic fold, you know. And all it took was a major conflict like this one, you know, to surface what, what's probably been brewing for many years at this point, you know. And and to your point, we see, you know, Saudis, you know, considering selling oil to yuan, uh, but already we see India buying Russian oil in rupees. Proposals, you know, have been made for the Russian sale of you know, liquefied natural gas to the EU being held in rubles, mm -hmm. you know, all of this, to your point, you know, this undermines the unipolarity of the U.S. hegemony, specifically around, you know, the world reserve currency. And if that strength of the dollar folds as the reserve currency specifically for energy, one can only speculate how it would impact other areas economically. I mean, yeah. why stop at just energy? Why not trade everything else in every other currency, you know? 
Russia has already been talking about pricing other exports in rubles as well. And I, I do I do want to be clear about a couple of things here. In terms of the reorientation of the Middle East, or apparently abrupt reorientation of certain Gulf monarchies, this, of course, did not happen overnight, as you intimated. They've been seriously concerned about U.S. strategic thinking in the Middle East for a long time. Because either the U.S. doesn't know what it's doing, in which case they shouldn't be listening to us, or the U.S.'s strategy is just to make it a total disaster zone where Iran is just not allowed to emerge as a regional hegemon. Either mm -hmm. way, these are not in any of their interests. And the amount of bungling that happened under the W. Bush and then the Clinton administration, and then Biden, of course, uh, has, has had a very antagonistic relationship uh, with Mohammed bin Salman. So that was, you know, I mean, to me, that was just kind of, not even a I know a lot of headlines were written about, oh, my gosh, the Saudis are ignoring Biden's phone calls. It's like mm -hmm. I'm really not, frankly, surprised about this. Yeah. You know, I don't want to make too much of a big deal about it, but it's it's certainly not surprising um, no. that, that this has come to this point um, with regards to um, India buying Russian oil. I do just want to make a quick point about this because a lot of people act like. Uh, India is going to be a huge outlet for Russian commodities. Um, there's, there's just no existing infrastructure to do that right now. No pipelines, no nothing. I mean, we're talking about loading oil and LNG onto huge container ships and sailing them all the way around the Eurasian landmass. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it at a huge discount. I don't think the Russians right. are real hot on doing that. India's right. facilities aren't even equipped to handle the kind of heavier, dirtier oil that Russia produces anyway. Right. So for me, I mean, Russia's economy is going to get a lot poorer and a lot crappier in the future if these sanctions stick around. You can 100% bet on that. Now, whether or not that will ultimately lead to uh, the ouster of Putin, uh, I think the evidence for that is pretty hit or miss. And most people admit now that, well, it's not clear that sanctions really do anything to deter behavior or change behavior or lead to the ouster of rulers. Cuba's had an embargo on it for 70 years, you know, Venezuela, Iran, take your pick. Those regimes are all still there. So uh, I think Russia's economy will survive. And where I think, though, that the sanctions example is a pertinent one is China, because China's economy could not survive what Russia is going through right now. Plain and simple. China is not oh, the world's gas station. They're a major exporter of everything. And in terms of keeping their economy running at near full employment, they absolutely have to keep manufacturing up. And that means selling to the West. And so I know people say, well, half the world's population didn't vote to condemn Russia. And well, it's really only the West that's using the sanctions. It's like, that's where all the money is. Mm -hmm. These are where all the important capital markets and consumer markets are. So if China wants to mess around and find out, I think the Biden administration has made it very clear that, look, if we ruin our economy, there's going to be an election. If you ruin your economy, there's going to be a revolution. So try us. I think this is an incredibly dangerous game, pushing these authoritarian regimes into corners. But that is the strategy. And it worked in Cold War One. So you could argue that. I love that you're it. calling you could, it Cold War One. <laughs> it is. It's Cold War One. We've been in Cold War Two for a while now. And I think, you know, you can make the argument that uh, Bush was too cautious in dealing with China and that uh, sorry, H.W. Bush that H.W. Bush should have been tougher with China at the time and that you could have overthrown that that regime, too. Um, but uh, I, I think that's definitely the, the game plan. You, you look at their speeches. I mean, it's just it's so much 
liberal idealism and you know you raise questions about well didn't the u.s do something like this like 10 years ago and it's like well that's just what aboutism what aboutism is just a news speak word for pretending that history started a month ago and that no other countries have any legitimate security interests and that everything the u.s has done was either well-intentioned or for the good of the world or something like that that's not how a lot of the world views it and certainly uh not china and not russia and you can say whatever you want about their horrible human rights records, how you'd never want to live in those terrible countries. Great. I'm with you on all of that. The material uh, facts remain. The security facts remain. I don't think it's in our interest to start conflicts with these countries, especially because in the long term, I think I do think liberal capitalist democracy is going to win. Uh, it seems very obvious to me. China is still ludicrously poor compared to the United States on a per capita basis. So is Russia. I mean... I don't see what the big hurry is. If you want Putin's regime to collapse, it's just going to. What's the succession plan after Putin? There isn't one. There isn't one. You know? You can just wait till he dies. Literally just wait till he dies. I mean, he's approaching 70? Yeah. What's with with China, you have you have strong institutions. You have the CCP that is that, that has an institutional hierarchy for how to put new leaders in place and to keep control of the country. Putin is is all that's holding the Russian system together. He's balancing so many different interests and competing factions. Once Putin's gone, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't see why there was such a hurry to get into this big, huge confrontation. It might have been because the U.S. feels that its relative power compared to China is slipping. And that might be true. And so maybe they thought, well, maybe we try and have some kind of proxy war now while we're still significantly stronger, teach them a lesson. It's hard to know. I don't think in this way. Uh, but I know that there are security planners and that that's their job is to think in this way. You know, you, I, I posted a RAND study uh, from a few years ago that basically was like, let's start Afghanistan 2.0 in Ukraine. And here's how we should do it. And it's like just no question at all of like the human cost or the ethical question. It's just strategically, it might be a good idea to turn Af to turn Ukraine into a second Afghanistan. You know, and these are our policymakers. So we should destabilize Europe. Yeah, yeah. Because Europe might start to get strategically autonomous, and that would not be good for American interests. Hmm. Really? Strong that, that's EU. what the brand paper said? It would be... Yeah, the, a strong the, EU. Keep... An independent EU is not good. Not for American power. American power uh, is best served by having a bunch of pliant, militarily reliant client states like Japan, like South Korea, like Germany, like France, who basically have to do whatever we say. Yeah, so, that's the reason that's the reason that, that NATO uh, was kept around. I know that people like Scott Horton tend to take a military industrial, um, you know, uh, what was it lock stock, Lockheed stock and two smoking barrels, uh, Bruce Jackson and the lobby to expand NATO. A lot of it, though, too, was, well, it's kind of convenient having the other richest part of the world basically in your pocket. And you can't argue that it hasn't been useful in terms of American uh unilateral interventions in in other countries so well i kind of want to go ahead henry oh i was going to say um what were you going to say i was going to jump into i was going to segue into uh russia stopping energy exports into europe and what would be the political uh consequence for these european countries but what were you going to do i uh yeah then let me jump in first uh, i just want to put a pin in my my initial you know um idea of china being the broker of peace because i think some some of the things joe that you're saying you know, make a lot of sense in terms of like that they can go either way, that they're going to win and profit either way. However, something that you mentioned is like China not not being able to withstand, you know, this kind of economic uh, 
pressure uh, that Russia is, I think only serves to, to, to push me further into the idea that China should or it is in their interest to broker a deal because, you know, if they don't um, and they keep having to grow closer and closer together, you know, with Russia and aligning themselves closer to Russia, it puts it puts them in in the crosshairs for the next wave. And, you know, I think it, it, it from where I stand right now, I think you make really good points about that. They can they profit either way. But I am leaning towards that they probably it's more in their interest to make it go away to i make agree this conflict go away i agree they want some quiet and stability this is their big year she is going to be taking a record uh setting third term here so they want mm-hmm. stability and quiet and they got plenty of economic problems on the home front he just can't do it at the cost of openly betraying putin which at That's this right. point will be tough because putin hasn't accomplished uh, it's hard to say like you said what is he trying to accomplish? I don't know. Right now, it doesn't look like he's accomplished enough to declare victory and safely roll home. The sanctions mm-hmm. will still be there. Uh, right. Yikes. But, so. but again, it just makes it makes China in a good position to be that independent broker because they have vested interest to make it go away. I agree. And, and make it go away in a way that's, that's uh, equitable, at least seemingly equitable for both parties. It'd be a huge yeah. win for him, too. Yeah. It would. It, it seems... It seems like the only uh, world leader who's been uh, trying to negotiate or play it, uh, you know, seek a diplomatic solution to the end of it is Naftali Bennett. Yeah. Yeah. And you saw how the Americans reacted to that. How, how, what was, what was their reaction? I haven't really even seen them. I mean, usually when when it first, when it first started popping up in the news a couple of weeks ago that, Hey, Naftali Bennett might be trying to reach out. Immediately, Anthony Blinken was just out there crapping all over any such ideas, you know. And it just oh, kind not of in Israel. Me of they like, would never do that. You know, just kind of like, hey, kind of like Boris Johnson. Like, you can just kind of see the irritation of U.S. policymakers. Like, look, just shut up and stay in your seat. Yeah, and, th- and that's why I think China's more, more serious, right? Because, I mean, Israel's strong. Israel's, you know, important, but it's Israel. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I'm Same not with to Turkey. diminize Israel, Same with it, but it's Israel. You know, like, it's not... Russia. It's not China. It's not the United States. You know, it's Israel. Well, even Erdogan tried to reach out. Emmanuel Macron really put in a lot of legwork. And Putin just said, I really don't get why you're here. You know who I need to be talking to. And it's Washington right. Right. Before, exactly. before the whole thing happened. And so it's like, it All was those pretty clear. Just ancillary players. Yeah. You know, like they're non-playable characters in this video game. And, you yeah. know, the, this and- is, yeah. Well, well, here here's something I want to I want to hit on before we wrap up this show, and it's okay. the um, risk of Russia stopping energy exports to to Europe because you know Putin signs this decree forcing EU imports uh, importers to pay for Russian gas and rubles, which ultimately raises a threat that Russia will cut off Europe from uh, from from gas supplies, and you know the immediate consequence of this would be that gas in Europe would would skyrocket to a ridiculously high price and um you know it would also just raise the the global price of liquefied natural gas so i'm just wondering you know what you think is the um i guess the first question is do you think that european buyers will um open euro to ruble accounts in in uh, russia's gazprom bank Are you asking me or? Yeah, I'm asking you. I think they would like them to. 
They've obviously said that. They say that this is the prototype for how to evade sanctions. And I think it's going to vary country by country. Um, I don't think Poland is going to do that. I think the Italians might. I think the Hungarians might. And I think the Germans might. Uh, I know that's not very helpful, but so what would happen basically is just in case anyone's not familiar with what what Henry just referenced here, basically what Russia is saying now is, okay, you don't have to buy rubles. What you can do is send your fiat currency to the Gazprom bank, and then the Gazprom bank will turn around and buy rubles with them. Now, this is all aimed at helping to prop up the ruble um, because obviously uh, imports... Russia doesn't actually produce a ton of manufactured goods. I know it sounds kind of weird, but they really are reliant on a lot of imports uh, for manufacturing. Those become prohibitively expensive as the ruble falls. And if they're not able to continue doing gas and energy sales, uh, the war basically will grind to a halt. The ruble will uh, enter a, an irrecoverable tailspin. And uh, spring is coming uh, there's going to be lower amounts of gas anyway. I don't know. I think a lot's going to depend on the domestic politics. I don't think there's a chance that it's going to happen in a place like Poland. France uh, has enough nuclear power. Germany's real problem is that they don't have any nuclear power to, to fall mm -hmm. back on. So they're in a tight spot here. But either way, if this conflict continues and there's no resolution in sight, I do think there's going to be a huge, huge drop off in imports this coming winter. I think American firms are rushing uh, to fill uh, the gap. I think Brazil's gonna do the same thing. I mean, it's it's tough to say because there's so many incentives for so many different actors. You know, Rand Paul gave a speech where he talked about this whole conflict basically being driven by mercantilist instincts on the part of uh, domestic LNG producers who want to sell their liquefied natural gas to Europe. And hey, isn't a conflict great because it makes the price skyrocket? So it's kind of like that old story about uh, this. I've, I've not had this confirmed, but I've heard it from several places. When, when Russia originally uh, seized Crimea, uh, there was like some big uh conference going on for like one of the big like raytheon or someplace like that and everybody started like cheering when the the news came that you know an invasion was going on yeah, pretty sick stuff but pretty really? predictable yeah so i don't know it's tough I, I i think there's no way for italy to fill in the short to medium term the amount of sales that russia does to europe um, China will take some definitely, but they have capacity issues in terms of running it out there. So you have the same issue of transport. And then you also have the fact that China's not looking to cut them a good deal. China wants it cheap as can be. Uh, so I, I, I actually think China is going to be able to keep Russia on side and avoid us sanctions pretty easily. I think, I think if China, I think it would have to be a, a choice, like a choice by she to get China caught up in some of these secondary sanctions because I don't know that more sanctions are coming because you have to have unanimity within the EU voting bloc and Hungary and Italy have both already said yeah this is this is the last bridge it's about as far as we're willing to go so is America going to go unilateral on the sanctions I don't think so and at this point everything I've read expert wise says China can very easily avoid these sanctions if it wants to and I think it does. I think it does want to. So 
Yeah. It just thinks about the leverage that China is going to have over Russia. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a great novel, actually, written about 20 years ago where this author, this Russian author, imagined that in a dystopian future, this, like, evil thug basically took control of the state and, like, t- shut it off from Europe and made it subservient to China. And, you know, it was written in, like, 2005. I can't remember the name of it, but I was just looking at it a couple days ago. But, yeah, it's it's tough. And uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, the Russian economy has not yet begun to feel the bite of the sanctions, which is why I think uh, the U.S. is not hurrying this along at all like i said blinken has literally our, our our top diplomat has literally not even made a phone call no interest he's off in the middle east uh shoring up a coalition against iran um so i think europe uh might be having some buyer's regret here in the near term because i i think they're coming to gradually realize that oh man our security policy uh, was was not ideal, and we're going to bear the brunt of it. Like you said, uh, America's imports from Russia were negligible, like 7% or something like that. Germany's is like 40%. All of Europe's is like 30%. So, Man, they're really uh, putting their foot in their mouth with uh, getting rid of uh, those nuclear reactors. Oh, I mean, yeah. What is the – I'm big, huge nuclear proponent. Uh, I think it's uh, – the best possible option you know to moving towards energy independence and clean energy you know i I love wind and solar trust me i'm I'm all about that shit but yeah you you need something and nuclear is a good option until storage technology gets better absolutely yeah i think it's just a sensible policy and uh you Mm -hmm. know there was a lot of knee-jerk uh you know environmentalist moves to get away from nuclear power and and now we're seeing uh we're seeing the results of that now um, I don't think that Olaf Scholz's uh, revolutionary reorientation of Germany is going to last. Um, I think he went against a lot of members of his own party to do that, and uh, I don't think I don't think it's going to hold together in the long term if this if this lasts. Um, I think I think the the bloc will not be able to put more sanctions on. I think it'll probably lead to some. I don't know, potential cheating next year. I don't know. It's mm. going to be hard to refill what all that natural gas. Buying buying uh, uh, oil and gas from Russia. I think that there will be an effort to totally, if the war continues, I think there's going to be a push to cut off all imports over the summer, uh, to cut off the money machine, because that is where most of the money to fight the war is coming from. And But then come wintertime, if, if they haven't been able to lock in enough supplies, I could see it fragmenting. If, if, if the war even goes on that long, if Putin can hold on that long, the Russian economy is going to crater. A lot of, lot of uh, unknowns at this point, but I just feel for the Ukrainians. I, I hate that it came to this point. It was so obvious where this was coming, uh, too. You know, I started writing about it six months ago, just writing article after article about, you know, this is pretty obvious where this is going. And if we don't want a bunch of dead Ukrainians, we need to do something and instead... Here we are. So, here here we are encouraging the bloodshed to continue. I mean, at this point, I don't at even least, know what, the what there is. is. To, at this point, I don't even know what what to say at this point because the U.S. policy is what it is. The Ukrainians want to want to fight. They don't want to be conquered. Um, I just I feel like we're trapped in this awful position that that was never necessary, and we're just left hoping that things don't widen or escalate 
So. I think that's a good place to end it. (laughs) Henry, do you have anything else to say? Um, No. Uh, Scary times. Not This isn't good for anyone. Nope. All right. Um, right, Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um, If you like the show, rate and review us on your Apple app or your Spotify app. And if you want to support our show further, Join us on our uh, Patreon where you get access to our Slack. Um, sometimes we release uh, extended episodes. Uh, so join us at our Patreon. Uh, Danny, uh, Joe, anything else to say? Wait, Joe, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, any writing or, or anything before we cut this off? Uh, well, you guys know where to find me. Uh, yeah. The Mises Institute, Libertarian Institute, uh, Antiwar.com, uh, my website, the author at JSM Writings. You can find me at Solismullen on Twitter. I always post my articles there. Uh, if you follow me, I publish in a lot of places. So that's pretty much it. All right, Danny. I'm good, man. Thanks for coming again, Joe. All right. Thank you guys for having me. Peace, everyone. Peace.